You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And figuring out, according to the Ramban, what is the source of, 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 of our fealty to rabbinic authority? And this question was dealt with in, in depth by two men that for some of us, like myself, um, were men who shaped my uh, yeshiva training. Um, although I never learned by either of them, um, the ideas of that I heard in yeshiva and the type of shiurim that I was exposed to in many ways uh, bespoke the, the approach of one or the other or a mixture of the two. And they are uh, Rav Hanan Wasserman and Rav Shimon Shkop, Zechard Tzadik Mivrocha, and Rav Hanan Wasserman, of course, what's, what is uh, always appropriate to say is Hashem Yikum Domov, because he, of course, was shot by Nazi collaborators, by the Lithuanians, um, along with his Talmidim. And, of course, there, is some, uh, there were some eyewitnesses who survived, who saw the incredible way he gave up his life. Um, these men were Rosh Hashivas of, uh, in, in, in specifically the years I'm referring to are the years from 1920 to approximately 1939. Those years between the war, um, between, uh, World War One and World War Two, were years of a tumultuous movement and 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 discussion also about what should be the the, the future of these yeshivas. World War One had decimated uh, many of these towns, and there was they were moving from place to place, and and really the 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 the, the revisionist historians and others talk about the great mistakes that were made during this period of not recognizing what was on the horizon. Um, and but, but underneath that, there was an incredible struggle to maintain Torah life. And there was a, there was a tremendous amount of, I wouldn't call it propagandizing, but there was a lot of appeals that were going on uh, for the Jewish community in the United States, which was growing to support the Torah life in Europe. Now, again, all of that sounds strange when we think about 1945, where there is no Europe, there is no Torah life, and everything is gone. But in in, in post-World War II, there was an idea of something beautiful and magnificent that had begun to arise of of young people uh, advancing with a certain uh, element of scholarship, and there was a, a, a sense of how precious the learning had become, how intellectualized the learning had become, how developed it had become, and they didn't want it to be lost because of war and disease. And therefore, there was a, a, a worldwide appeal to somehow save these yeshivos, strengthen them. Now, the cities that I'm referring to, when I talk about from, from Harodno or Grodno, which is really the same thing, uh, and and you can see here 
and Baranovich or Brana, and again, again, how it would be pronounced here, uh, Dr. Kogan, the normal. Uh, you you said it correctly. Now it all changes because now they follow the Belarusian pronunciation. Right. So you we probably hear now the Polish version, which is Baranowitz. Right. So that's a Polish version. So it's uh, but it, Belarusian. The way I can hear it is a bara. Baranowicz, whatever. I don't. I don't even right. know Belarusian that well. Right, but. right. So, and both of these cities are now in Belarus, right? Yes. Both of these cities that's, are that's now. The whole area here is Belarus or right. White Russia, however right. you want to right. call it. Yeah. And this is two hundred kilometers from each other. Grodna yes. or Hrodna was an older city. It was a capital city. It was a city that went yes. back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years, perhaps. So it was an older city. Um, and and it, it had a very illustrious Jewish community. This was a city that was actually only started to develop as a town, uh, Baranovich, only at the latter part of the 19th century, when Jews were moved, and Jews, of course, were uh, were encouraged to move there, and the yeshiva was started there. The yeshiva was called Ohel Torah, and this was called Shar HaTorah. Now, both of these yeshivas were... Um, uh, were were basically yeshivas that were meant to deal with the the burgeoning Jewish population in the area, but they weren't necessarily superstar yeshivas. Um, there were men that were wonderful men that were at their heads, but after World War II, there was a sense, and again, it seems like a pipe dream now, that maybe if we send the best teachers the best um, uh, pedagogues into these places, we will be able to establish a real strong bastion of, of learning and greatness and preserve. So there was a certain sense of organization and a certain sense of upgrade. And w- within these places, Rav Shimenskop becomes the Rosh Hashiva of, of, of a yeshiva that was already established, but it reaches its real heights in between 1920 and 1939. And the same thing, of course, is true about the Ohel Torah Baranovich yeshiva, where Revel Khanan Wasserman takes over. Now, Khanan Wasserman was actually uh, a student of Rav Shkup when Rav Shkup was in Tells. He, Rav Shkup was, Rav Shimon was 15 years older. Now, I'm talking about that without explaining what the differences between them. And let, let me make it clear here. Um, uh, Rav Wasserman was part of, was a student, and probably he was considered, uh, especially as the Chafetz Chaim was getting older, as one of the prime students of the Chafetz Chaim. Now, even though he had learned in Tells and Baranovich by Rav Shimenskop, people saw him as a a man of extreme ethical um, excellence and, re- and and really continuing the path of the Chafetz Chaim. Um, now remember, he was you know he was he was thirty years the Chafetz Chaim's junior. He was relatively a young, vibrant man when the Chafetz Chaim died, and and and, and he his yeshiva was a yeshiva more for young people. But what he was interested in was not giving in to the excesses of what we call pilpul, of understanding every word properly, but yet to somehow still retain some of what we call the lumdus, 
of the Torah revolution that people attribute to Chaim Brisker and others. So his yeshiva was a very strict, musr, ethical yeshiva of piety. It was mostly for, for boys before their 15th birthday. But even within that, there was a there was a uh, there was four or five or six different classes set up, and uh, it was run in a very strict fashion. Rav Shimon Shkop, on the other hand, was a um, an incredible intellectual, and um, he uh, uh, was known for not accepting the the standard um what we call hakiros and formulations of the brisker derech of two dinim uh, of just using language but rather going beyond the language that was being offered and 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 and, and, and creating a depth in that language to actually deepen the idea to make it comprehensible without sacrificing any of the brilliance. So Rav Shimon was, and this was something that uh, he learned in Tells, because Tells was considered a very intellectual thinking place. And he advanced this. And, and now what's interesting about both of these men, they again, although Rav Hanan learned by Rav Shimon, Rav Hanan did not stray into this um, what we would call hyper-intellectualization, he was more satisfied with knowing what the key terms meant and not getting full of yourself. Whereas Rav Shimon, was, what Rav Shimon wanted to do was go beyond the terminology and expand into something that we would call almost philo- real Talmudic philosophy. And because of that, they are sort of opposites. There was the state of learning at the time of what was happening. It's called that the brisker uh, motif. And then there's what do you do with that? Do you let that turn into a pilpalistic um, uh, phraseologies? Or do you actually try to understand in, in, in simple terms what that means, never letting go of the pshat, and also layering it with a tremendous amount of Musar and Yerushamayim. That's Baranovich. What Grodna is about is about going beyond the constructs and the pilpalistic brilliance of the constructs, but understanding things from a philosophical perspective. It's not enough that you nod your head and you understand the language. You could explain it to anyone. Because you, you actually have thought about it and reflected on it and used the capacity either of the Hebrew language or whatever language you have to really, to, it, it makes sense. And it makes sense even on a global philosophical level. And that is, those yeshivas were, and although they were 200 kilometers apart, they were very, very far apart. Now, before I get to the questions that they both raised, the exact same question that they both raised, I want to I want to illustrate the difference between these men. Both of these men realized, as I said before, as the whole world realized, 
that one needed to um, go to the United States in order to make things work. You needed to go to the United States. Rav Shimon and Rav Elchanan took trips. Rav, Rav Shimon's trip was in 1927-28. Rav Elchanan's was in 1936, I believe, or 37. Rav Shimon, of course, he went to various places and gave shiurim and was a superstar wherever he went. Dove Revel, who I'm sure many of our listeners know, um, requested Rav Shimon to stay and be and, and take the position of Rosh Hashiva in Yeshiva College and give the the ultimate class to give the highest year, which is what he did. And when people when in Europe they heard about this. There, there was a, a tremendous uh, rash that maybe Rav Shimon would stay, and Rav Shimon enjoyed his time in, you know, in the United States giving the shiurim. And there was a worry that he would stay. And the Rosh Hashiva of the Mashkiach of Mir, Rav Yeruchim, and others, they wrote to him saying, "You've got to come back. You have to come back to Europe. You're one of the stars. You're one of the great brains." And Rav Shimon sort of understood that maybe America might be the spot true these were american kids that were coming to the yeshiva but he needed to be pushed back and he uh, he, he acquiesced he recognized what rav Soloveitchik said years later that americans asked why not what that there was something about the american um mentality of these kids, that many of them were off the boat themselves. But by the time they got into the halls of the yeshiva, there was something in the zeitgeist that had them asking why, not just what, which was really what Rav Shimon was about. Now, Rav Elchanan came to America and there was already the drumbeats of war. There was already the excesses of, of, of Hitler, Yamach Shimon. And Rav Elchanan felt that he could not stay. Not only that, he didn't, although he was approached by, I believe it was Saul Silber, uh, and others from uh, Hebrew Theological College, um, he did not want the students that were in danger already. Baranovich was going to close down. They would have to move to get exit visas that would bring them as teachers slash uh, tutors and educators and to be accepted into the Hebrew Theological College or Yeshivic University slash college because Rav Elchanan felt that would be a a um, a perversion and bastardization of Torah to be there, and that those places it was usher to to even go to those places, and he didn't want to be saved by that. He didn't want his students going there because he felt that that would lead to a, a road to assimilation, 
and to cheapen it. At first, well, simulation was later, but the first thing was that would cheapen Torah and cheapen what Torah is about, and it would cause Torah to have to compromise with uh, the demands of, uh, of of the culture. So these men were very different as far as that goes. And although Rav Elkanen dies on Kiddush Hashem and is rightly referred to as a great tzaddik um, for his Mesiris Nefesh, this choice that he made, this insistence that he made, seems to, seems to represent uh, a, 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 I would say, a very tragic type of mindset towards what it, again, uh, about Jewish survival. So what's interesting is that in 1924 and in 1925, when both of these men were sort of riding high, creating these great institutions, they both wrote works that were not classic commentary on the Talmud. They were works that had to do with thinking big. Rav, Rav Shimon's work was called Shari Yosher. And Rav Elchanan Wasserman's was called Divri Sofrim. Rav Elchanan's work was much smaller, but it was written and they asked both of them the same questions in some way, which is, uh, although Rav Shimon's work deals with many, many more subjects, one of the key subjects that both of them start out with is what is the rationale behind fealty to rabbinic law? They both are dealing with this question and they want to answer it going to the same place we have gone, which is the Rambam and the Ramban. And both of them are perplexed over Ramban's words. And each of them offers an option to explain them. Okay, so I've given you a tremendous amount of intro. Let me just go to the Ramban one more time. Remember, the Ramban was talking about, this is what I mentioned last week, that there's a difference, that the different types of rabbinical laws. There's things that they explain what the mitzvot mean. And they explain, right, and that's their, that is their God-given ability that they must have in terms of what the Torah means. But then there's the mitzvot that they create. And I mentioned last week, and I've had a lot of discussions about this with many scholars over the week, about Ramban's, what Ramban really means. Because I, I believe, to tell you, um, that both Rav Elchanan and Rav Shimon seem to have ignored what the Ramban was saying here. And again, I am a nobody compared to either of them. I have to tell you, though, my reading in the Ramban was um, validated by the reading of a, a survivor of the Holocaust uh, as he matured, Rabbi Lau. And Rabbi Lau's reading in the Ramban, which I'll show you later, cor- corresponds to my reading, which is that the reason why we have to follow the dinam of Muktza and no matter, or, or what they call Klayim, the Rabbanon, is because that's in their purview, because they have, we need to follow their interpretations, uh, the way they explain the Torah. 
And therefore, even though they did not say that carrying this object or moving this object is called the malacha, but they could have said that. And had they said that, that would have been the Torah. Therefore, what's, what could have been the Torah, although they're telling you it's not, is also part of their power. And therefore, although it's not exactly Lo Sosur, because Lo Sosur exactly is about a person who, who argues with the Beznagodo and is put to death, it is an asmachta, which doesn't just mean some sort of hook that I throw the idea about. An asmachta, according to the Ramban, means it really is, it is it's essentially connected and in a way, following it, in other words, not carrying muksa, not moving muksa, and not uh, keeping the laws that the rabbis want us to keep about the type of chametz and the, uh, before the zman, or the type of clothing we shouldn't wear, even though the corner of the Torah you can, that is a way of, 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 of accepting and understanding that this was within their rights. Um, whereas the other mitzvos, the ones that are we, we started talking about in our Hanukkah, and pretty soon we're going to be talking about reading the Megillah, those are part of the idea of recognizing the Zikanim, understand what they're doing. That's the way I explained the Ramban's sources for keeping Torah, of keeping why we keep rabbinical mitzvos. It really depends what the mitzvah is. Basically, according to the Ramban, you probably, um, um, although you're okay saying vitzivanu on Mikra Megillah, it's it's very, you know, very iffy uh, to make that bracha. But we make it anyway because Rav Nachman says you do. When we say vitzivanu, Right, Al Mikra Megillah. It it really is not God commanding us. It's almost like, hey, God told you that these are men who are worthy of accepting. Not that you must accept it. When we say Vitzivanu on on um, a Takana, when we say Vitzivanu on, for example, an Eruv, which is meant to protect. Um, the din of the Torah, then the Vitzivanu has a lot more uh, connection. Right, that's the Ramban's opinion. Rebel Chanan, as you can see here, in his work written in 1924, he calls it Kunturis Divrei Sofrim. He quotes the Ramban, as you can see here on the left side of the page. Das Ramban. And here is here is his question. He says that Nira Medivara Ramban, that the Ramban argues on the Ramba. Okay, as we know. That the Pasuk about Lysosur is not 
going on mitzvahs the Rabbanon. On all mitzvahs the Rabbanon. It's only going on, uh, as we said, interpretations the rabbis give. The Ramban obviously admits that you have to follow the rabbis. Doesn't he admit that we are right? Doesn't the Ramban say that God wants us to listen? If that's true, this is Rav Ochonen's question. Remember the questions the Ramban asked. Why are we making so much on rabbinical law? Why do we always assume misopic, you don't have to be machmer? Why do we sometimes say that it, because of a great loss, you can push away a rabbinical law? If according to the Ramban, you, the, the source of following rabbinical law is also somewhere in the Torah, so you should ask the same question on the Ramban. If there's another Pusik or another source or some other tradition, we know even the Rabbana said, which has no oral, no written tradition. If there's a Sophic, you have to go Lachumra. So therefore, According to the Ramban, logically, since the Ramban asked, let me say the question better. Since according to the Ramban, the Ramban asked on the Rambam, what about all this? What about Sufik the Rabban and Lakula? What about all the Kulas that we have on the Rabbanans in generally? What about the, all those things? His answer, he has to admit you have to follow the Chachamim. If it's from the Torah, then it'll be the same questions he asked on the Ramban. On the Rambam. Okay, it won't be an Asay and a Losase. But it'll still be chamur. It should still be, there still still shouldn't be mekel the way we're always mekel on the rabbanons. True, the Rambam's source for an Easter the rabbanon is very powerful. But if the Ram if the Ram if the Ramban's is also powerful, and it has the strength of a tvarteira, so lechora it should also have all the questions the Ramban asked on the Rambam. He says, what are you going to say? That there is no mitzvah from the Torah to listen to the Chachamim? You're not going to be able to find that source? Because remember, if that, if there's a real source, he has no right questioning the Rambam. So what do you want to say? There is no source in the Torah? If that's true, why do we have to listen to them? If there's no tzivoy in the Torah... There's no Pusik, there's no Halacha, there's no Svara. And even if you want to say, the Svara says you need to listen to them. Well, a Svara has a din of the Torah. Svara, Rav Elchanan teaches us, is just like the Torah. The Gemara always says, as many of you might remember, what do we need a Pusik for? This is logic. If something is pure human logic that we have to follow it, being a human being, so that is the same as halacha. Svara vikra is the same thing. And therefore, it should be subject to the same questions that the Ramban hurled at the Rambam. So, vehine, 
The Gemara says that there are three, Rebbe Hanan is going to answer it, based on this Gemara. The Gemara says Moshe Rabbeinu did three things um, that uh, God agreed to. One of them was he left uh, Tzipora. From the time he becomes a Navi, he doesn't engage in sexual relations with her. He also broke the Luchas when he came down the mountain. And he added an extra day for Kabbalah Satora. The Gemara Yavamah says that Moshe Rabbeinu used logic or, or, or uh, analysis of psukim for each one. One of them was based on the Pasik because it says Yom, that it has to be a full day. The other was a Kalvachomer, that if, if, if the Jewish people had to separate uh, because they're only going to hear the Ten Commandments, the Seres Adibros. Moshe Rabbeinu definitely has to separate because he's on all the time. That's called the Chomer. And when it comes to uh, the Luchos, Moshe Rabbeinu again said that if this is if if they are if they have uh, violated the whole Torah by doing Avodah Zarah, then uh, clearly they don't deserve this. Now. Tosfos and Yavamis writes, Rebbe Hanan points out, that it's not a real Kalvachomer, and it's not a real Drosha, because then it's not Moshe Rabbeinu. That's Moshe Rabbeinu figuring out what God wants. Right? It's got to be, the Gemara says, Moshe said it and God agreed. Well, how, does it, how is it generated from Moshe? If it's, if, if, again, Rebbe Hanan is saying, if Moshe is just is operating like the ultimate uh, Dayan, the ultimate Rosh Sanhedrin, who's reading the Torah properly, then it's not that Moshe thought of it. Moshe is basically learning up the Torah. Then it's not from Moshe, it's from God. That's what Tosvah, that's what Tosvah says. So, um, which Ravachana now says, well, if that's true, then what is it that Moshe was doing? So it's not really it's it's not really from the Torah. Then why is it that God wants it? So what Rav Hanan says here, based on this Gemara Nevamis, is that basically we need to see Moshe Rabbeinu in all these three cases as having a great point that is not exactly justified. It's not really justified from the Torah. Because all three cases that uh, you could have argued, things are different. Moshe Rabbeinu is not always on. Sometimes he's hearing the Torah, sometimes he's not. Maybe the Torah doesn't mean three full days. Breaking the Luchos isn't exactly the same thing as a person uh, dying if he does have Zarah. All, Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, 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 rationalizations are not ironclad. In fact, what they are is almost like, Rokhanan says, a din de Rabbanan. That's what Rabbanan do. When Rabbanan make asmachtas. The Rabbanan think of something that really makes sense. They dress it in an idea that's suggested by the Torah. The, the Torah's ideas, the Torah's psukim, the Torah's attitude 
lends themselves to saying it. It's within the spirit. It's not ironclad, though. And yet, God said they were right. Hmm. How do you know God said it was right? Because God gave the Torah on the next day. God told Aaron and Miriam that they were wrong in criticizing Moshe. God said, Asher Shibarta, which we know means good job for breaking the Luchos. So what do you see? You see that human beings are, like Moshe, like the rabbis, are um, inspired by their knowledge and by their understanding of the Torah to invent, to move further. Not saying that's what the Torah meant. It's not saying that that is the will of God, but it aligns with what should be the will, and it's in the spirit. And God agreed on all three. So what you see is that even though there is no command, anytime Moshe's descendants, the people who represent Moshe throughout time, like the Ramban says, the, the Chachamim, the Zikanim, who need to be the arbiters, Hiskima Daiton Ladas Hamokom. God is okay with what they say. The same way God was okay with Moshe, God is, God feels what they're doing is right. That doesn't make it Torah. When they decided grandmothers, should, great-grandmothers should be part of the Erva situation, or, great grand, or great-granddaughters, it's not a mitzvah in the Torah. It's not from the Torah. But God agreed with that. Um, and as you can see, the Rambam, who we quoting now, <laughs> for the, he's quoting the Rambam to help the Ramban. Um, the Gemara says that you can't by muktzah. Um, Chachamim said you can't move certain objects the same way you move them during the week. Why? The rabbi said, Nechemian is best and said, if the prophets have been telling us, the Nevi'im, that we shouldn't walk on Shabbos the way we walk during the week, we shouldn't speak on Shabbos the way we speak during the week, for sure that we shouldn't be moving objects like we do, because then, even though our speech is, is, is pure, look what our actions are. And if, we, and if we don't, as long as we don't talk, we just spend the day in silent moving stuff in the garage and picking stuff up, basically what's Shabbos going to be? They're going to pick stuff up, move stuff where they want from place to place, hiding stuff, putting stones, putting other things around. So that's not Shabbos. This is the Rambam talking. Shabbos is supposed to be a day of rest. Not a day when you spend the whole day uh, organizing your basement with all from the junk. Now, does that mean that this is, the, the Chachamim said that's the Avera of Yanuach? That's not true. Laman Yanuach is only if you do a Melacha. That's not a Melacha. Not carrying muksa is not a Melacha. But that's against the rotzon of God. 
even though it's not in the Torah. From the word Laman Yanuach, we understand what God really wants. He wants the day to be a day of resting. Even though, technically, you're not over a lav or an essay from the Torah. Um, basically, he says that's the reason why we have to fulfill rabbinical law. Because rabbinical law, again, Rav Hanan is saying, is the will of God because God agrees to it from outside the Torah periscope. It's not within the Torah pipe that God's agreeing to. It's not a section of the Torah. It's God beyond Torah that's agreeing to it. But we know it's God. God is the Rabbi Kivalevich? Yes. I'm sorry. Is that similar to what uh, how uh, what Pinchas did? He was being proactive without uh, having been told to do so. But he did, and then God said that he approved of it uh, afterwards. Good, good, that's a good question. The truth is, is that we have a tradition that that is part of a of a of a halacha l'moshem Sinai. In other words, what Pinchas did, which we call the halacha of kanoyim poginbo which is that if someone feels the, the, the anger at what occurs, he has the right to kill the person who's, who's in the midst of the act of sex with a non-Jew. That's a special, a special law called Kanoyim Poganbo. Mm-hmm. Now, we are, that has been codified as a halacha l'moshe misinai. Not as something that I know that must be the will of God, like a rabbinical uh, extension, a rabbinical adaptation. Here what we're saying is, is that there are things that we know God agrees to, but outside of it being Torah. Um, he says it a little further here. Um, Like, for example, he says that um, we find that there are gzeros even before Matan Torah. When we talk about the, the, the incident of Yehuda and Tamar, the rabbis tell us there was a gzeros of the Bezin of shame that a woman who was waiting for her, um, for, for the Yavam, which is what was going on there, right? Tamar was waiting for Shela. That uh, that she was uh, uh, considered up to the death sentence. Who's making Zeris there? It's before Matan Torah. That's not one of the Zion mitzvos. Um. So why was every why was Yehuda going to listen and 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 have her put to death? Another question he asks is the famous argument about what chinuch means. We know that there's something about chinuch for a child. The child, once he reaches a certain age of understanding, uh, needs to be um, guided and taught and be encouraged and has to fulfill certain mitzvahs. Now, most opinions are that that is a mitzvah 
like Rashi says, on the parents. The parents have that mitzvah. If sometimes Bezdin steps in in the place of the parents, but the Ramban interestingly says that's a mitzvah on the child. Now, how could there be a mitzvah on the child to fulfill it himself? We know that a child's not chayiv in mitzvahs until he becomes bar mitzvah. So how can he be? It's a, it's, it's like a conundrum. How could you say the mitzvah is on the child? The mitzvah of is on the child. The chiyuv is on the child. The child can't have a chiyuv. So he says, you know why? Because the rabbis tell you the child has to do it. That's the will of God. The idea that everyone has to do the will of God is not about the Torah. Everything that exists is meant to, to fulfill the word of God. Everything, even things that aren't connected to the Torah, even non-Jews and everyone, and even animals. And everything God does is for his sake. Now, why is it that a cotton doesn't have to put on tefillin? A cotton doesn't have to shake a lulab till he's an adult? Because God said when it comes to his system that he gave at our Sinai, they're potter. But when the rabbis make a mitzvah, and we already know from Moshe Rabbeinu, his three cases, that God agrees to what the rabbis want, that's Ratzon Hashem, but not Torah. It's Ratzon Hashem. God agrees to what they want, so we need to do it because that's God's will. Yes. Shouldn't we be making a distinction about decisions that Moshe made and decisions the rabbis made? Good point, Jack. Rav Ochanan here is, 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 <laughs> has, 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 has inserted Moshe as the as the um, uh, model for all rabbinical legislation following. And the same way those three events, one of them especially, is the strongest one, right? The event of adding an extra day, of God giving the Torah on the next day, when he really meant, or what was the simple understanding would be the Torah should be on the day before, that sort of agreement of God shifting the universe, really, and making it another day is an indicator that what rabbis decree is the will of the creator. Not the will of the giver of the Torah, but the creator who then decides to give the Torah on a later day. So the creator is bigger than necessarily the giver of the Torah. So when we fulfill, and again, you see the sort of logic he's doing here. Now, you're right, Jack. You could say, who says the rabbis are really locking step with Moshe Rabbeinu? Well, remember, the Ramban sort of said that, 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 that God knew that there needs to be a body of people of wisdom to determine things, right? But again, the way I was learning it, it was within the purview of the will of the Torah. Rabbi Wasserman is saying, it's beyond Torah, even though it's based and inspired by Torah. Um, but you're right, Jack. 
um, uh, you know, if one wants to, one could say, wait, 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 Moshe Rabbeinu, I'll agree to. But who says you rabbis are, are, are somehow, again, we're, we're, are, 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 are miniature Moshe Rabbeinus. Whereas Rav Wasserman would say, Rav would say, look, once the genie's out of the bottle, once you see that this idea of a, a takana can be before Torah, can be binding without Torah, then why assume that the takana of the rabbis is different? Um, now, uh, he, Rav Ochanan, uh, quotes a pasuk in Yirmiya, and um, if, you, if you take a look here, he talks about burning children, Nebuch, uh sacrificing children. He says, the Baal built these bamos, listrofes b'neim be'esh, asher lo tzibesi, velo dibarti, velo also alibi. So there's three levels of what God tells Yirmiyahu. I didn't command it. Tzivesi, Dibarti, and also Alibi. But what's the difference between the three? So, Tzivesi, if you look in the Targum, what's called, um, you know, the Targum Yonason on that Pasik, the Lo Pakidas Baraisa, that's a command straight out of the Torah. Dibarti, that would be a special command given by a Novi, which is binding only for a certain time. Like a Novi can, cannot add to the whole totality of the Torah, but if a Novi is given a command from God, we are, uh, if he's a true Novi, we need to listen to that. That would be lo dibarti. Lo also alibi is, the Targum says, lo ravo kadmoi. It's not my will. So he wants to say that that is the third level is what the rabbis plug into, the will of God. And that's something that forces us to listen. Um, now, Rabbi uh, Kulevich, yes, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, because I, I know we've had a number of questions, but I'm I'm just I'm wondering What's the difference between this situation with the three things that Moshe changed and the situation where Yitro tells him you're supposed to get these judges uh, not like the way you're doing it. Uh, and the Nitziv, of course, says that, that this was because they would compromise. You can argue over whether that was the reason or not, but whatever, whatever and Moshe wouldn't compromise wouldn't allow compromise but then later on when moshe uh, grants to to uh, reuven and god um the dispensation for getting the property as long as they go ahead and be the vanguard of the soldiers um there's no it it, it sounds like um hashem just declares that to be the um uh, it, it just declares that to be what's done, and and he's saying it's you know it's a, like a fait accompli. So what are I? I don't understand if why wouldn't that if if he if Hashem didn't tell him okay. that that was okay? Why would okay? 
why, uh, why would that be different from these other three? Okay, so so I think what you're asking, Bob, is is that Revolchanan seems to have chosen three places in the Torah, and there are more places where things seem to happen not out of a direct command from God or from what the Torah says, right? That, right. that is the, the, the story of B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain, and also Yisro's uh, advice about how to set up judges. Both of those places seem to be just as important as the other three, Bob is asking, because they are actually uh, written about in the Torah and praised in the Torah. They become part of the Torah, and, and God did not stop it from happening, right? So w- there should be even more uh, cases of Moshe Rabbeinu's actions. I think that is uh, uh, Bob's question, right? That's again, fair. Again, yeah. right? Okay. right. So the reason why Rav Wasserman uh, picks these three is because it's got the key language that he wants, the Gemara mentioning about these three. The key language that Rav Ochanan wants is his schema daitam daito le daiton. That's what he wants. Hiskimo daito le das hamoko. Now you're right, Bob. One could imply that, of course, das hamoko was to allow the settlement of Bnei Ruvain in in, in Aver Ayardain. Otherwise, you know, why is it in the Torah with such detail? Also about Yusro's Eitzah. But there is no concrete, other than it being in the Torah, Rav Wasserman wants to find that term. That is the Das of God, even though it was, right, God allowing something to happen. Now, you remember, Bob, I don't want this class to be about Parshana Samikra, but we know even when it comes to the Miraglim, there's a whole discussion. Is just, is God allowing it? Is God saying, okay, well, you'll do it, but you're going to regret it, right? By Shalach Lecha. So Rabbi Hanan wants to be safe. He wants to find a place where it's clearly God wants this to happen. Like it says, that's Dasa Mokom. And basically what Rabbi Hanan wants to gain by this is that Dasa Mokom, since it's beyond the Torah, doesn't have the rules of Suffolk, the Rabbanan Lakula. It doesn't have the dinim of, 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 of being Machmir and all these other cases, Right. All these rules that the Ramban asks on the Rambam are Torah law. And if it's Lysosur, it's got to be Torah law, unless the rabbis happen to legislate on each one. They check the box or uncheck the box to make sure it doesn't have the power of Torah law the way it should. Whereas according to Revolchanan, the way he's explaining the Ramban, the Ramban's sense of Torah, or why we listen to the Rabbanon, is based on it being the well, that's what God wants. That's the Ratz and Hashem. Ratz and Hashem doesn't have the same rules that the Torah has, like Suffolk, Lakula, and things like that. So that is <laughs> Rav Now, it's a trick Rav Ochanan does. I'd like to contrast that with Rav Shimon, if you don't mind. Let me contrast to uh, the work of Rav Shimon and Shari Yosher. Now, there's people are going to be listening to this and say, how dare you compare, you know, this 41-page Kunturist that Rav Wasserman wrote to this, you know, 400-page magnum opus that Rav Shimon wrote. Again, I am not 
comparing the two other than the fact that they both were trying to think beyond the meat and potatoes. And here is Rav Shimon. Look what he writes here. Ramban says the lab said, Lo nemer b'Torah. Only it's on what's in the pshat or the yud gimumidos. What chazal or machadish, like muktza, it's not really, or definitely near Hanukkah, it's not part of lo sasser. Mama od hineni tom alzeh. Rav Shimon says, Hayitochen sheniya mechuyavim l'shmo b'kol dibre chazal. We're supposed to listen to chazal, but there is no asaras hatorah about it. How could that be? Me Odon Lanu, who is going to rule us in Loavino Shabashamayan? Vim Hulo Gozaralain. If he didn't say you better listen to these rabbis, whatever they say, Ushmo Bakotri Khazal, me Yishtabado Sonalizet. Again, Rav Wasserman says, Well, you know it's the will of God, and every being inherently needs to uh actualize itself by doing the will of God. The child who does mitzvos, chinuch is based on that's the will of God because that's the will of the rabbis becomes the will of God. He says, this breaks the roof. This is an idea that you think about it, 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 it it's shocking. The less nagar ubar nagar no no carpenter has come and has really fixed it. In other words, this is a question he's had for years on this Ramban. What is the ultimate source then if it's not from Lysosser? He says, I found an answer that according to the Ramban, the reason why we have to be so careful about mitzvahs chazal, because our seichel, not because it's the will of God, because it's correct intellectually. They decided we needed Muktzah. They decided we needed an Isra of Chometz earlier. They decided we needed, even if something isn't bound together completely and, and woven together, stay away from that piece of clothing. That has to be true for us. Why? Because ultimately, why do you listen to the Word of God? Because, not because of Harsinai. Yes, Harsinai is a shvua, because you know it's right. If it's God, the creator, you submit. Ultimately, because of Seichel telling you to submit. Seichel, not because it's the will of that creature. This, right, which is the way Rav looks at it. The Seichel, ultimately, why do we listen to the mitzvahs? We listen because we know they're true. Our mind tells us, don't you want to get Olamaba? Don't you want to be close to God? Don't you want to fulfill yourself as a human being? Okay. The Seichel tells you to be careful whatever they, rabbis, tell us to be careful about. It's about Seichel. That's the Ramban's opinion. Seichel is the Machayev. Now, um, now, uh, Rav Shimon therefore says, if we go to the next page, um, so, um, 
basically what, what, uh, Rav Shimon points out, and he talks about the, the interesting differences between the Ramban and the Rambam based on this, in terms of whether it's based on Seichel or not, and why it would be Machmir or not on a, on a, on a Durabonon. Um, Now, there's obviously a lot more that can be said here uh, about um, the difference between the two. Uh, I, I do think it's crucial that both of these men have a higher value. And Rav Hanan says the value is, if you're, we know that these are the smartest men, and we know it makes sense that they should be the arbiters. Seichel tells you you should do it. Um, I, I want to share with you before we end tonight, just for a minute, something that uh, Ramban's first cousin, uh, Rabbeinu Yona, writes. Rabbeinu Yona of Gerona says that when he tries to explain why Chazal say Divrei Sofrim are more Chomer than Divrei Torah, he says the following. Um, we know that when someone is over on Divrei Chachamim, as much as you think he is um, doing it because of taiva, because he just wants to touch that object or move that object or wear that piece of clothing, it always has an element of, of dismissal of the rabbis in it. It's because there's a sense that they don't really know that it's only rabbinical. Which he says is different, of course, when a person violates the Torah. When a person violates the Torah, he has a guilt that kicks in right away. And he feels terrible that he has gone against the will of God. When someone violates the rabbinical law, Rabbi Yonah says, there's always an element, even though he's doing it out of taiva, about, I don't agree that the rabbis have control over me. Um, that's one thing Rabbi Yonah says. The other thing he says is, is that when you violate rabbinical law, the reason why the Gemara says things like, you're high of Misa for going against the rabbis, is because it builds up a feeling that you didn't do anything wrong. So the rabbis have to be even stricter. Here's the part I want to end with. What does it mean that God loves Divrei Sofer more than Torah, the Gemara Navodah says? Because he says that the Takanas Chachamim are based on Yira. Other than Ner Hanukkah, let's talk about the parts that are not like Ner Hanukkah, Muktza, Klayim. The rabbis are making a Harchaka. So we should not wear Klayim, actually. We're, we're not, we shouldn't eat meat and milk. We're not going to eat chicken and milk. So basically, that is fear of God. So therefore, listening to the rabbis means you plug into their fear, the fear of being over in Yisra Daraisa. 
And that means that whenever you listen to the what the rabbis are worried about, you are a Yorei Hashem. And since there's a mitzvah to fear God, listening to the rabbis is a way to fulfill the mitzvah of Yiras Hashem. He says when a person is afraid of, of, of being misyached with a woman, if a person is afraid of doing yichud, so why? Because the rabbis say you shouldn't be alone with that woman. So that's because you fear what they want you to fear, which is having sex with her. So that's really yira. So when you when you fulfill the rabbis' safeguards, it's a way of fulfilling the mitzvah of yira Hashem. This is what Rabbeinu Yonah says. And um, thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.